This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's taken a sustained effort over the past several years to make its battlefield communications more reliable and resilient. But now the Army's new integrated tactical network is being put through its paces. Soldiers started their first major training rotation with the new gear last month. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu visited the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk, Louisiana, to speak with Army officials and soldiers about how this is all performing. Jared files this report. The 1st Brigade Combat Team of the 82nd Airborne Division has had the integrated tactical network in its inventory for about two months now, but this was the first time the brigade had used it in a realistic training environment. The night before we spoke with them, paratroopers from the 1st Brigade jumped into this vast wooded range near the Texas border in a training scenario in which they faced a hostile opposing force portrayed by another Army unit and had to get quickly established on the ground, including with reliable communications. Lieutenant Colonel Andy Harris is the commander of the 1st Battalion of the 504th Infantry Regiment. We spoke with him just after his unit finished its initial after-action review from the previous night's operation. As far as communications go, he says there was a night and day difference between the integrated tactical network and what his unit would have been able to do before. I, I mean, it's it's a hundred times better. Uh, the, 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 so, for instance, the, the ability to pull down your EUD and look to see, get that, that visual confirmation um, where all of your units are, um, you know, in space and time and on the battlefield before you were relying on, okay, you had your map, you think they're there, they may not, you don't know if they're there, there may be a ridge line or an IV where you can't see them, but now when you pull that down, it's like, okay, I, I, you know, you're pulling that real-time data, so you, you know they're there. The EUD is just an Army acronym for what's in reality a more or less off-the-shelf Samsung Galaxy smartphone. Each soldier wears one, and via a somewhat complicated series of cables, they can send and receive data either through cellular networks or specialized military waveforms. And that's what the Army means when it calls the new network integrated. It's meant to blend legacy tactical communications capabilities together with new military-specific systems and commercial ones. Indeed, when the first units dropped into JRTC the night before, their initial network connectivity was delivered by AT&T cell towers. Captain Hannah Scott is the commander of the 1st Brigade's Charlie Company. It's her job to get that network up and running on the ground. So currently, 1st Brigade 82nd has the most communications assets of any brigade in the Army. Uh, with that, it does bring some complexity, uh, but it gives us the flexibility to echelon comms in based off of the airborne timeline. And then we've got our typical Win-T assemblages, but all in all, the uh, integration of this equipment, that's the purpose of integrated tactical network. It doesn't mean that Win-T is going away. This is just providing us more options and it increases our pace plan. It gives us a more robust pace plan so we have options for our commanders. Another one of those options, the Tactical Scalable Mobile Ad Hoc Network, or TSM. It's meant to form a mesh network the Army calls a communications bubble for all the formations that need to communicate with each other once they're on the ground. It's based on a commercial waveform, and the Army's still prototyping the technology for combat settings, but Hera says his unit's initial experience has been promising. Now with these variable height antennas that you can send up, it's the same as like a retrans. You still have to secure it, but when you pump those variable height antennas up, it, and they get up above the trees, the, the network that it expands. I mean, you're talking TSM. I was talking 20 kilometers on TSM with the variable height antennas. You're not doing that on traditional FM comms. If you were on traditional FM, you know, I'm no expert, but the amount of retrans that you would have to set up and in the terrain that you would have to set that up in, um, that would it would eat more combat power than you would have than, than we had to use to secure those variable height antennas. There are times, you know, when that when that mesh bubble may get interfered interfered with or you're, you've delinked it. 
because you've just gotten too far out of it. But when you're in that bubble, I mean, the, the comms are, are extremely clear. Speed is a big plus too. That mesh network can get up and running within about 15 minutes after Captain Scott's signal company hits the ground with its equipment. That's partly because those variable height antennas Harris talked about aren't giant masts attached to big vehicles. They're small quadricopters that can get from the ground to above the tree line in just seconds. Again, Captain Hannah Scott. The speed is extremely important because commanders need that communication spread in that bubble, specifically what TSM provides as fast as possible. Right now, we are only able to provide FM comms in a short amount of, or a long amount of time, such as 45 minutes. Commanders aren't able to make operational decisions in that amount of time, but 15 minutes shortens and reduces that time, and then we're able to get the communications up. The Army sees this JRTC rotation as a learning experience for the whole enterprise. Army Test and Evaluation Command is also here, getting its first look at how the ITN network operates in a realistic environment, and the acquisition community is getting its first real soldier feedback on how those new commercial capabilities work on the battlefield. Brigadier General Robert Collins is the Program Executive Officer for Command, Control, and Communications Tactical. And you know, as we start to leverage some of the commercial capabilities, one of the things that we'll foundationally do over time is, you know, start to expose those to different threat environments and see, you know, how, you know, we can, you know, harden those. You know, some of our focus areas of lowering the probability of intercept and detect and geolocate, um, those are things that traditional commercial technologies aren't naturally, you know, naturally exposed to. So as part of our Cape Set process, we bring those, whether it's a big, whether it's a small, we expose them to that threat environment. I mean, we have a lot of cooperative research and development agreements that we do that through. And, you know, as we you know, get ready to prepare for the next Cape Set, things that are ready from an affordability perspective, from a, a ConOps perspective, from a technology maturity level, we can fold that in and we continue over time. When the Army first set about revamping its battlefield networks into the iterative capability sets it's now starting to field, one of the main goals was to make the tactical network less complex, easier for soldiers to use. On that score, the JRTC rotation showed the Army still has a lot of work to do. For example, those Samsung smartphones, they're connected to the broader network by a somewhat fragile micro USB connector, the same kind we've all broken on our own phones. Most of us don't jump out of airplanes for a living. And depending on a particular soldier's position in a unit, Harris says all those communications devices can be a lot to manage in a combat situation. With the new equipment comes a lot of cabling, uh, there's a lot of weight to it, so we always go into like user fit and form. So it's not really ideal right now on like wearing it on your body armor and your kit. There are tons of cables all over the place. Um, at the team leader and squad leader level, you're talking four to five personnel, you know, nine to 10 personnel. I don't necessarily want them looking at their EUDs. I want them to be able to reach out, touch people, tell them like, you there, you there, you there, you go there. And what I've seen is they wanna, they wanna put that EUD down and they wanna focus down and in when they need to have their head up and they need to be focusing on the terrain and the enemy and the situation that they're in. Another area of complexity, in order for all those radios to work together, they have to be pre-programmed with the specific communications plan the unit plans to use ahead of time. Harris says it's a very labor-intensive process for the Signal Corps, and if they miss a single step, the entire mission plan could fail. And when you say the whole mission plan fails if one of those steps goes awry, what, what exactly does that mean? I mean, it just means you have no comms when you get to... It could potentially be that, sir, absolutely. Like, if if you're not on the same mission plans, you will not be able to talk. And then, then, then you have to, it's gonna be very, so we could hit the drop zone and realize that 
one company and another company are not on my mission plan and now I cannot talk to them whatsoever until we load that mission plan and that could that could take a substantial amount of time and that's not if we don't jump that. in the right equipment either with it right. um, and on an airborne assault we're probably not going to jump that equipment in because then you're taking something else out that you're going to need to fight with when you hit the ground. But the Army says it fully intends to solve problems like that and it wants to learn about those kinds of issues as early as possible. That's part of the idea behind fielding new equipment in capability sets in the first place. New gear gets delivered in two-year cycles on a rolling basis and not every unit will get the same stuff. Officials want to start delivering both hardware and software via a continuous DevOps model. Major General Peter Gallagher, the director of the Army's network cross-functional team, says that's why critiques from soldiers at this stage of the process are vital to ongoing development. This is really a culmination exercise. This is kind of in the breach, in the, in the crucible of combat, force on force, and this will help us kind of, as we look at preliminary design for 23, we're going to relook. you know, 21 is, okay, what adjustments do we need to make to the basis of issue, and, and how do we go forward from here? But the, the feedback from the unit has been absolutely critical on, on kind of helping you know, General Collins and, and providing the feedback back to the vendor saying this works, this does it, here's what we're getting from those units, here's how we can we can leverage this in the fight. This you know gateway device is far too expensive and so is affordability drill. We make adjustments we need. You know what type of radios do we really need on Echelon? Uh, what's the minimum essential kit? And, and we thought we had it about right last April, but after this rotation, we're going to relook that because I think this feedback is going to be critical. At the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk, Louisiana, I'm Jared Serby, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So. What we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over two million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership 
such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all, but is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've uh, led, this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime and uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.